Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Florida Folk Festival is held every Memorial Day weekend in White Springs. Whether it be like the Hispanic, uh, Cubano stuff coming out of Miami, uh, to uh, the bluegrass stuff upstate Florida, and um, it's just so much. I love the, uh, the folk life stuff that they have here, the old Cracker Cowboys talking about their way of life, and the old catfish fishermen that are still running trot lines and stuff, you know what I mean? It's cool to see all that here. You can find it all in one park in one weekend. It's, it's pretty awesome. We'll discuss the 1740 siege of St. Augustine. And again, it highlights kind of a broader European war and, and how those wars affected the smaller colonies in Florida and throughout the New World. And we'll talk about South Florida food history. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Are you from Dixie? I said from Dixie. We're all in fields of orange, they begging to me. I say how be you. It's good to see you, man. Tennessee, Georgia, Carolina, just a little place below that Mason, Dixie, man, y'all from Dixie, or even Dixie, there's so much from Dixie, too. That's Florida blues man Ben Prestige, one of many performers who regularly play the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs. Since 1953, the Florida Folk Festival has been held at the Stephen Foster Folk Culture Center State Park. The annual event celebrates Florida's diverse cultural heritage through music, dance, storytelling, food, exhibits, and more. Musician Paul Garfunkel has been playing the Florida Folk Festival for more than two decades. This is the place where uh, Florida tradition meets, meets modern Florida, where people have the chance to come and get away from the, the workaday world and learn about what Florida really is, what real Florida is. Standing here on the banks of the Suwannee, I remember the first time I played down here on this stage with, uh, with Frank Thomas. Just unbelievable, it's, it's goosebumps. Uh, between here and places like the Old Marble Stage that used to be the main stage for the, uh, the Florida Folk Festival, and you feel the ghosts of the people that were here before, you feel the traditions, you feel Cousin Thelma Bolton being here, you feel Gamble Rogers here, you feel Will McLean here, and it's just uh, an awesome, opportunity for folks like me to be able to come out here once a year and share what we have to share about the state of Florida. Legendary folk musician Frank Thomas is known for writing songs about Florida and for holding workshops at the festival to help others do the same. There's so much history in the state of Florida. You say Florida and they think about dismal world, you know, and the tragic kingdom, stuff like that, and the beaches they don't understand that uh, more calves are birthed in Florida than anywhere else. The calves are birthed here, they ship the calves out west to the feed because it's cheaper to ship the calf one time than to ship food in here to fatten them up once a month or whatever. 
So it's just, uh, it's fascinating stuff, you know. And, and this area where we're at right now, up here in North Florida, this is a big tobacco growing country. Cotton was big up here. And I guess, you know, back uh, before the war, they had plantations up here, probably had slaves working on the plantations and things. So Florida, it's just fascinating to me, the history of it. All the way back through the Spanish and the British and then the, the crackers came in and here we are today. Pedro Zapeta does educational outreach for the Atatiki Seminole Museum. He's displayed his Seminole wood carving at the Florida Folk Festival. You know, I feel it's important to, to maintain our traditions because, you know, I'm making things. They're not just objects. Those objects are carrying the knowledge and skills of, you know, all of my ancestors. So there's a lot of things associated with it. So it's not just making a spoon. There's a lot more to it. And there's, again, all these different traditional knowledges that are associated with these objects. And uh, sometimes things have just what you call traditional protocol as well. There's, um, we have different uh, rules and etiquette that go along with just about everything in, in Seminole culture and so creating objects isn't is not an exception to that. Menorcan cast net maker Michael Lucina is passing down his unique skill to apprentices. Lucina has displayed his nets in the folk life area at the Florida Folk Festival. Well I, I picked it up watching my father and my brothers especially my father I was sitting and watch him making and making nets because uh, it's the same thing. I can tell you what, I ate a lot of, of fish and grits growing up, I can tell you. But uh, it, was, uh, it was a fun time to learn to do this, and then uh, I just hope to pass it on. Mary Allgaier is a dancer with the Hot Pepper Steppers. To me, it's, there's so many different styles of dancing and music, and this is what spoke to me when I came here 30 years ago, and I think there's something here that speaks to everybody because we're all from you know, some other place in our, we, when we go back. And I think there's something that touches everybody. And it's just really nice to share that. Every time we come, somebody else gets excited and starts dancing. So it's, that's pretty special. Jeffrey Forbes is a leader of the Sweetwater Shape Note Singers. I think what's important about keeping uh, the tradition of sacred harp alive is that, well, the music's just beautiful. It uh, is a, a tool by which people can learn to sing. Uh, that's what it was always intended to be. It also allows people to uh, express themselves. Shape note singing is sung full out in full voice. There's, there's no dynamics other than full on singing. So it, it, for a lot of people, it lets them express themselves fully uh, without any constraints uh, in singing. Historically, I think it's important to keep this alive because it lets people uh, especially Southerners, be Southerners in their own right. And so you'll see people acting perfectly naturally. For more than 30 years, Haitian storyteller and cook Liliane Luis has been sharing her culture at the Florida Folk Festival. The people were so resentful for her Haitian boat people. Although I didn't come by boat, but all Haitian are supposed to be boat people for them. And then they gave me a hard time, but I kept my job and I stayed 20 years until I retired. I took an early retirement just to do my stories, just to go to school, libraries, uh, festivals, all over the world to tell my stories. So that, that makes me happy to have been able to keep the culture. 
Dr. Peggy Balzer is the recipient of the 2019 Legends and Legacies Lifetime Achievement Award. Balzer started the Folklife area at the Florida Folk Festival in the 1970s and has had an influence on the event ever since. Well, the Florida Folk Festival is very interesting because it's been going uh, since 1953. So it's the longest running state folk festival in the country. And it's gone through many iterations over the years, as you can imagine. Um, but it now is a combination of many things. Uh, to some people, it's like a family reunion because they've been coming for generations, really. Some people, the family's been coming since the 1950s. And now the third generation of children are growing up uh, beginning to play music and loving uh, all kinds of folk music. Uh, to uh, those of us who are folklorists, we have uh, different stages where we try to showcase the traditional culture of Florida that people wouldn't know. Um, so each year there's a theme or there's a occupation or an ethnic group that's featured in the folklife area. And uh, people get to know more in depth. So one year it would be the Menorcans of St. Augustine, or one year it might be, you know, people who are involved with the surfing industry of Florida. It just depends. And most people don't think of that as being folklore, but it is. And so um, it's a, a gathering in a very rural part of the state. So the whole... Uh, all the little communities right there in Hamilton County and Swanee County and near Lake City, they uh, actually benefit from, you know, all of these folks coming there once a year for this weekend celebration. The Suwannee River passes through Stephen Foster Folk Culture Center State Park in White Springs. Old trees add to the beautiful natural setting. Every Memorial Day weekend, thousands of people converge at the park to experience a wide variety of Florida folk music, traditional dancing passed down from generation to generation, storytelling from different cultural groups, and food including barbecue, collard greens, cornbread, shrimp gumbo, homemade ice cream, and other festival food. As Peggy Balzer explains, the Florida Folk Festival emerged out of a national movement to celebrate our cultural heritage. The Florida Folk Festival was an outgrowth of the National Folk Festival. Back in 1934, a woman named Sarah Gertrude Knott was hired by uh, the WPA. Uh, it was a WPA-inspired project. Sarah was good friends with the Roosevelts. She wanted to put on a spectacle, a huge festival that would celebrate uh, the diversity of uh, people in the United States. And this is the first time that anything like this had ever been done. There had been festivals that would be uh, ethnically based or maybe community based, but there was nothing on the scale of a national festival to bring together all the different groups and everybody celebrate uh, everybody else's culture. And so she went to... Uh, the first festival, National Folk Festival, was in St. Louis, Missouri. And it included um, things that we think of now today as being part of every folk festival. It included uh, African-American gospel singers and blues singers. It included Native American dancers. It included um, East uh, Indian dance. It included um, 
bluegrass. It included old-time music, what we call old-time music. Back then, I think they called it hillbilly music. But this was a part of, it was during the Great Depression. It was when people really needed to, I think, get a boost to really understand how wonderful the country was. Even though money was tight and people were struggling, there was still something to celebrate. And culture was it. In 1952, the Florida Federation of Music Clubs decided that Florida needed its own folk festival. Thelma A. Bolton, also known as Cousin Thelma, was a primary organizer of the event from the beginning. Peggy Balger. Thelma had been a performer at the National Folk Festival. She was a storyteller and an actress. She taught drama and uh, theater in, in uh, high schools in, um, I think, Alachua County. So she had gone up and she told stories and she was known as Cousin Thelma. And uh, Sarah Gertrude Knott had been approached by the music clubs uh, to start a Florida folk festival at the Stephen Foster Center in White Springs, Florida, in the middle of nowhere on the Suwannee River. Of course, he never saw the Swanee River, but that doesn't matter. Stephen Foster Center was there, and they wanted a festival just like the National Folk Festival. So Sarah Gertrude Knott did the first festival, which was 1953. And the music clubs, she told them, we really need somebody who's local, who knows Florida, because I don't know Florida, and somebody's got to get these people together. And so Thelma became the director of the festival for the second year, and she was uh, the sole director for many, many years. Uh, she, she definitely, uh, she took Sarah Gertrude Knott's model and uh, it kind of replicated it on the state level. So the first festivals, for instance, had uh, Josie Billy and uh, some of the elders of the uh, Seminole tribe who came up, and that was really exotic for people in rural North Florida. They might have lived in Florida all their lives, but had never really seen a real Seminole. Uh, she had African-American gospel singers. She had bluegrass players. She had the Greeks from Tarpon Springs came in very early and, and played Greek music. So she took that model and re replicated it in rural North Florida, a town of 800 people. And uh, it's, I mean, the, the model is a good one. And so uh, it, it went on from there. Musician Ben Prestige says that the Florida Folk Festival is an opportunity for people to experience the real Florida culture. Well, I think a lot of people don't, they think of Florida and they think of uh, obviously like Disney World and beaches and stuff, but that's really not Florida culture and history, you know. That's people from other, other places coming down um, and uh, doing that stuff. But yeah, there is a lot of culture here, a lot of Southern culture and um, just with food and music and stuff like that, that's unique to this part of the country. Um, you know, guys like Frank Thomas, man, really opened my eyes to that. Like, there is like a certain style of Florida folk music that uh, I almost want to say it's like a subgenre of, of country or bluegrass or something. But uh, it's its own unique thing, and I love those songwriters like Frank Thomas that are that write about Florida and, and Florida history and Florida culture and things that go on here that don't go on in other parts of the country. You know what I mean? It's really cool, and this festival like embodies that whole thing with the music. Um, and the different subcultures that we have in Florida, whether it be like the Hispanic, uh, Cubano stuff coming out of Miami, uh, to uh, the bluegrass stuff upstate Florida, and um, it's just so much. 
I love the uh, the folk life stuff that they have here. The old Cracker Cowboys talking about their way of life and the old catfish fishermen that are still running trot lines and stuff. You know what I mean? It's cool to see all that here. You can find it all in one park in one weekend. It's, it's pretty awesome. The Florida Folk Festival is held annually on Memorial Day weekend in the Stephen Foster Folk Culture Center State Park in White Springs. Seattle, man, what's in the photo to the Sierra This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the Thomas Arnsong Rule Britannia was composed in 1740, the same year that Britain attempted a siege of Spanish-controlled St. Augustine. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Florida was controlled by the Spanish from 1565 up through the 18th century, but that didn't mean that there weren't attacks, at least on its sovereignty, including the French and the English and several other privateers and others who were trying to take control of the Florida colonies. But in 1740, there was a, a fairly large concerted effort to overthrow Spanish colonial rule, and this was by the British forces, British naval and army forces. And it was part of a larger conflict called the War of Jenkins' Ear, and this is a great example of one of the European conflicts, kind of the old world conflicts spilling over into the new world, into the colonies. And much of the conflict took place throughout the Caribbean in Central and South America. There were several attacks that occurred on Spanish fortifications in what is now Colombia and the gold mining areas of Central and South America. But Florida was a very important strategic location. Of course, Florida didn't produce any gold or anything like that, but the city of St. Augustine held this really significant strategic point because this was the jump-off point to go back across the Atlantic to England, to Spain, to these other places. So it was important for the British to try and take St. Augustine. And this particular attack was led by James Oglethorpe, and Oglethorpe was the governor of the British colony of Georgia to our, our north. And Georgia was set up as kind of a buffer colony between the Atlantic colonies in the northeast. So there, there was always this um, effort at least to try and overthrow British rule and, and kind of complete the eastern seaboard under British colonial rule. So they were trying to overthrow the Spanish, and this siege took place for about a month. Uh, the British set up on Anastasia Island, and they were lobbing cannon shots into the city of St. Augustine. Now you have here an original map from the time period that was created by someone who actually witnessed the 1740 siege. 
Yeah, that's right. This is a 1740 map. It was actually printed in 1740 in a magazine article that talked about the military effort to unsuccessfully take the city of St. Augustine. And it was done by a cartographer by the name of Thomas Silver. And Silver was on board the ship Hector, the HMS Hector, which we can actually see pictured here in his in his map. And this is a wonderful map. It's one of the most popular early colonial maps of St. Augustine because it's incredibly detailed. It's a bird's eye view map. That means it kind of gives us an angled view, sort of what a bird would see, an angled view from the ocean looking west over Anastasia Island and the British encampments towards the Castillo to San Marcos, which had only been completed about 50 years prior to this time period, and the city of St. Augustine. You can see the Catholic cathedral. You can see all the buildings in the town along the waterfront, some Spanish ships, and these little dotted lines that are showing the arch of the cannon shells that are traveling from Anastasia Island over the Matanzas River into the town. And as I said, the siege took place for about a month from June into July of 1740. And the British actually set up a blockade, and that's what this map is meant to represent. This is the naval strategy, at least, to blockade the port so that supplies could not get into the city. Therefore, the the Spanish would have to give up because they couldn't breach the Castillo. The fort really was a very well-made stone fortification, so they couldn't take it by land, even though the British had taken a lot of the surrounding forts, including Fort Mose, which was up to the north. They had to blockade and, and kind of starve out the town as much as possible because they were slightly outnumbered. But unfortunately, the blockade didn't work. The Spanish were able to get supplies from other colonies in Cuba, and uh, they were able to hold out long enough that Oglethorpe just had to give up. Uh, they were running low on supplies, and, and they ended up leaving. And actually, the Spanish took Fort Mose uh, shortly after it, uh, during this overland expedition, and they surprised the British forces there. So this map is really a wonderful snapshot of the conflict. And again, it highlights kind of a broader European war and, and how those wars affected the smaller colonies in Florida and throughout the New World. Maps of Florida have certainly evolved over the centuries, but many of the elements of St. Augustine found in early maps have have really remained the same. Yeah, that's right. St. Augustine and and Pensacola are really the only cities in Florida that represent this old world colonial aesthetic, if you will. A lot of the the buildings, including, you know, most notably the Castillo de San Marcos, is still obviously still there. You can travel and, and walk in the footsteps of the Spanish soldiers who were garrisoned there in 1740, watching these cannon shots come over the Matanzas River. And the map making is so accurate. I mean, it, it even includes these bathymetric soundings, you know, it tells you how deep the, the sandbar was and where the traps were for ships, you know, to get in and out of the harbor there, which was notoriously difficult, you know, throughout even the 19th and 20th century. So, yeah, map making of St. Augustine is very different because, you know, this was really the only stronghold was St. Augustine in Pensacola. So there were a lot of people here over the course of generations. So they they spent a lot of time trying to get this right. And it is fairly accurate. And again, you can see the little town in the background and downtown St. Augustine is in the exact same spot. So it's been there for, for many, many centuries, which is why we call today one of the oldest continuously occupied settlements in all of North America. It's a fascinating map. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the map we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. 
some of the most uniquely Florida food comes out of Miami. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this look at South Florida food history. The culinary history of South Florida has always been a reflection of its diverse culture. While Florida is geographically very southern, Florida's food culture is different from other southern states. Throughout history, South Florida has experienced different immigration patterns. In the 1800s, Bahamians immigrated to South Florida, followed by Cuban, Haitian, and Jewish communities. Each group that arrived contributed to the vibrant food culture of South Florida. Dr. Kimberly Voss is a food historian and associate professor at the University of Central Florida. I specialize in South Florida. You see such a, a mix of different foods from the various people that settled there. And of course, the fact that Florida went through several flags before it actually was granted statehood. So you see this really fascinating mix of Jewish communities, Hispanic communities, Spanish influences, and of course, the, the bounty of what we once had here. There's a saying that in Biscayne Bay, you could put a hook out um, without anything on it and catch a fish that were so plentiful at the time. And if you didn't like the fish you caught, you just tossed it back because you knew you could get another one. And so those kinds of things allowed South Florida to exist in a time when often you, the only way you could get to South Florida was by boat. And so it's, it has a very interesting history, both from the people who settled here, but also its natural resources. There's a theory that Miami was kind of settled because there were still orange groves during the, the Great Freeze. And so all of those things kind of create something that you see foods in history here that happened before other parts. You know, we were eating avocados and making guacamole well before other places. Boiled peanuts, key lime pie, the kinds of things that are here. This idea, too, that tourists come to see our food, right, in a different sort of way. And so it has a very interesting food history kind of from that standpoint. You know, I would say Miami in particular as a food city has finally got the recognition that really it has deserved over the years. In the early 20th century, Miami gained a reputation as an exotic food destination. People in South Florida had access to foods unheard of in other parts of the country. Orange groves, lime trees, avocados, mangoes in your yard was something that was kind of considered this exotic idea. And, and Florida was good about marketing that, too. Avocado ice cream, for example, was a big thing that was sold to food editors in the 1960s as something that you should do. So it was kind of the difference, you know, that, that was kind of exciting. And, you know, there was a point in time when people got oranges at Christmas as kids. Things that we take for granted as Floridians was something that was very exotic to the rest of the country in that way. Um, you had a, a pretty big influence with people coming from Chicago and New York to winter in Miami, in South Florida. And so you had kind of the mixture of the, some of those cultures in many ways, too. And that's what I think is so interesting about Florida particularly South Florida, is the mix of so many different folks, whether it was Hispanic culture coming from Cuba or simply they were Midwesterners that relocated and brought with them. I mean, there was a point in time when some of the best Jewish delis in the country were in South Florida. There were also a few restaurants that made their mark on South Florida's food history. One establishment called Joe's Stone Crab was established in 1913 by Hungarian-born Joe Weiss, who moved to Miami from New York to alleviate his chronic asthma. Joe's Crabs, of course, is a great story. They were really the first ones to make stone crabs. Stone crabs are not something that people tended to eat very much, particularly when you had so much other seafood that was available. But he figured out the way to prepare it and serve it, and the mustard sauce and the things that kind of made it appealing. And they were the ones that kind of established who was important and who wasn't important in South Florida. Al Capone, for example, would come and eat there under a different name. And he had made friends uh, with Joe's wife to the point that she said that she would kind of protect him if the authorities were looking for him. And in response, he sent her flowers every Mother's Day for the rest of her life. The diverse food culture of South Florida tells the story of immigration. 
The culinary influence of immigrants from around the world can still be found in home kitchens and in restaurants and delis throughout South Florida today. Dr. Kimberly Voss. I'm glad to see South Florida getting its recognition in the culinary world, both because we have the most amazing ingredients here, but it is a place that people come to celebrate. And I'm very appreciative to see that the local cultures are now also getting recognized for their contributions to Miami food. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, radio and podcast producer with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great weekend. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.